Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 6. Introduction to The Narnia Code. Hello, and welcome on this lovely morning of January 2020. Unfortunately, Matt and I, we didn't manage to get together and record another episode discussing Till We Have Faces. And rather than just skip a week, I thought I would record a short-ish episode introducing the Narnia Code, because I was on the Talking Beast podcast last month talking about this Narnia Code with Brian, or Glumpuddle, as he's sometimes known. So my plan for this episode is to explain in a little bit more detail what the Narnia Code is, and I'll include a snippet of our discussion at the end of the episode, and I'd encourage all the listeners to go and have a listen on their podcast. I am armed with my drink of the week, which in this case is Irish breakfast black tea. And the quote of the week isn't from Lewis, but from the scriptures. Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Cheers. So let's just get down to brass tacks. What is the Narnia Code? Well, about 10 years ago, Dr. Michael Ward published a book by the name of Planet Narnia, and all of this was based on the research he'd been doing the previous years. And he then later came out with a popular version of that book called The Narnia Code. And it was actually even made into a TV documentary that I actually remember seeing an advert for when I was living back in England. And what the Narnia Code addressed was this. There are a number of puzzles about the Chronicles of Narnia. And incidentally, in in his book, he refers to it as the Narniad, which I really quite like. So I might call it that from now on. But in the Narniad, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there are a number of puzzles which have always rather stumped scholars. And the first one is the fact that Lewis's work here, it seems a little bit slapdash a little sloppy, and there's an odd mix of influences. If you think through the Chronicles of Narnia, you see evidence of Greek mythology, Roman mythology, as well as odd characters like Father Christmas. And Father Christmas in particular had often caused people a lot of consternation. What is Father Christmas doing in a world where nobody knows about the person of Christ? Or, if we're going to be specific, they don't even know about the Mass either, so how can you have a Christ Mass when there's neither Christ nor Mass? And people did know that at least one of Lewis's friends, Robert Lansing Green, had urged Lewis to remove Father Christmas. So this is the first mystery. Why does it all seem a little bit hodgepodge? And despite the seemingly slapdash approach which Lewis approaches the Chronicles of Narnia with all this odd mix of influences we somehow intuit that there is a structure to the Chronicles of Narnia. And over the years, lots of different people have offered their theories. Some people have said that the seven books represent the seven sacraments. Others have said that they represent the seven deadly sins. Others, the seven virtues. So these are the four cardinal virtues which we spoke about in Mere Christianity, which, if you remember, are justice, fortitude, temperance, and prudence, as well as the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Other people have suggested that it's connected to Shakespeare. There have been lots of theories that have come and gone, and they've never really explained it. And then that brings us to another puzzle. 
Why have the Chronicles of Narnia lasted? I mean, so much children's literature has been written, but yet fallen by the wayside over the years. What is it about the Chronicles of Narnia that make it last? Now, Dr. Ward says that all of these mysteries can be explained by his thesis. And in his scholarly work, Planet Narnia, and in his popular work, The Narnia Code, he argues that C.S. Lewis deliberately architected the Chronicles of Narnia using the imagery of the seven heavens of the medieval cosmos. Now, that's going to take a little bit of unpacking. What were these seven heavens of the medieval cosmos? Well, prior to the Copernican revolution of the 16th century, everyone spoke about the seven heavens, and astronomers pointed to the seven planets that they could see in the night sky, which they thought revolved around the Earth. These planets included Jupiter, Mars, the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, and Saturn. And each of these planets had a complex mix of associations with them. And a lot of these stemmed from the pagan past, when people regarded them as deities. And so there's, there's this complex web of literary associations and qualities and attributes that people associated with these planets. And it was thought that these planets exerted influences over people and events, and even the metals in the Earth's crust. So those were the seven heavens, and Lewis, being a man who was steeped in the classics and uh, thoroughly acquainted with medieval thought, he believed that these seven heavens, he described them as spiritual symbols of permanent value, that even though it was an outdated view of the cosmos, he still thought that they had value, particularly as spiritual symbols. And Dr. Wall's thesis is that he used these spiritual symbols in the Narniad. But that then begs the question, how did he use these planets? And I describe it as he was using them in the same way that an artist will use a particular palette of colors. It gives a feeling to the picture. The picture itself is still unique, but if you choose a particular color set, it's going to elicit a certain feeling. It's rather like a, a key or a time signature in music. It doesn't determine everything, but it definitely... It definitely changes the way that you experience the music. For example, if, so, if music is in a major key or in a minor key, naturally in minor keys we feel sad. Well, Lewis does something similar when he takes all of these literary associations with each of the seven heavens and applies them to each book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And this gets into one of Lewis's very strongly held opinions about books. And he talks about this in his essay on stories. And he says that one of the main qualities of a good story is its atmosphere. He describes it as something that is everywhere present, filling everything, but nowhere made explicit. For example, he thought that there was no point setting a story on Mars unless the entire book had a Martian feel to it, a quality that, you, that just seeps off the pages. It's like the, the flavor or the spirit or the tone of the book. And perhaps another way of thinking about this is returning to that idea of music. If you listen to The Planet Suite by Gustav Holst, he goes through each of the planets, and when you listen to the music, you get a distinct impression for the personality of the planet that is being represented, whether this is a kingly planet or a militaristic planet. In fact, I'll put links in the show notes to YouTube videos of a performance of Jupiter and Mars, and you'll hear what I mean. So, we've said that 
In constructing the Narniad, Lewis was drawing upon the spiritual symbols of the seven heavens, the seven planets known by the medieval world. And we've said that these are each used to influence the feeling and the atmosphere in each of the books. So I think it'll be really helpful if I run through the first few Narnia books to give you some concrete examples of what that actually ends up looking like. So let's begin with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because here at Pints with Jack, we only ever go in publication order. <laughs> so The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is based on Jupiter. And Lewis felt very strongly in his life that the world needed more of the jovial spirit, the spirit of Jupiter, because he said we've had enough death and destruction. We now need kingly jollity. And that's really what Jupiter is all about, kingliness. If you think back into The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is repeatedly called a king, whereas he isn't elsewhere. Remember, Mr. Beaver calls him the king of the woods. Safe, of course, he's not safe, but he's good, I tell you. He's the king. And we have other allusions throughout. Actually, in the episode when Matt and I talked about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we commented that when the children put on the fur coats, which they find in the wardrobe, and they go into Narnia, that Lewis even says that they were too big for them, and so they hung down like royal robes. So this idea of royalty is, is mixed in throughout. In fact, if you think about it, it's not really Turkish delight which tempts Edmund. That just gets him talking to the queen. The thing that she says that gets him to betray his siblings is the temptation of kingship. She says that she wants to make him a prince and one day king, and so he will be above Peter. And we go through the entire story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and how does it end? It ends with a coronation. Now, earlier I said that the presence of Father Christmas in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the consternation of many people. A lot of people didn't like it. They just felt he was out of place. He just doesn't make sense in Narnia. But the beauty of Dr. Ward's thesis here is it makes sense of Father Christmas. In Lewis's lecture notes on Jupiter, Lewis describes the theme of Jupiter as cheerful and festive. He says those born under Jupiter are apt to be loud-voiced and red-faced. Doesn't that sound like Santa? He's probably the best personification we have in our modern age of this jovial spirit. So that was the line that was in the wardrobe. Jupiter is all about kingship. Now, last season, we went through Prince Caspian. And I said in that episode that Prince Caspian is based on Mars. And I think most people know that the god Mars was associated with war and martial spirit. And we definitely find that throughout the book. There's this idea of knighthood, Reaper Cheap being the prime example of combat and chivalry. But Mars was also a deity that was associated with the trees. And the trees also have a fundamental role to play in that story. When the children come into Narnia, they land in effectively an orchard. Throughout the book, they're trying to wake the trees up so they can come to the battle. And in the end, that's exactly what Aslan does. Now, for the remaining books, since we haven't actually gone through them yet on this show, I'm not going to offer quite so much detail because I don't want to ruin it for Matt. The planet associated with the next book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, is the sun. And the sun is associated with dragons and light and gold. After the Dawn Treader, we have the silver chair. This is based on the moon. And the moon is associated with lunacy because the moon waxes and wanes. It changes color and shape. 
Next up, if you're reading in publication order, is The Horse and His Boy, and that's associated with Mercury. And the associations there are with twins, messengers, boxing. There's a whole lot of literary associations which you find present in that story. Then after that, you have The Magician's Nephew, and that's associated with Venus. And so that's all to do with mothers and birth and new life. And you end with The Last Battle, which is associated with Saturn and the end of things. So I hope from that little run-through, you get the point of the Narnia Code. It's saying that C.S. Lewis, when he was building the Chronicles of Narnia, that he chose an individual planet, one of the seven heavens, as his primary influence as he was writing that story and imbuing it with all of the ideas and association and imagery that was associated with that planet. Now, if this is true, if Dr. Ward's thesis is correct, and I think it is, this absolves Lewis of the charge that these books were just thrown together, higgledy-piggledy, in a haphazard fashion. What it does is it shows Lewis to be a far more careful writer than anybody ever imagined. I mean, just the very idea that he managed to have this whole other level of these books, which nobody ever noticed. And to me, this just makes sense, particularly the more I've learned about Lewis. For example, he loved poetry, and he, he loved the complexity that went behind the poetry, like it was a little puzzle. And that's what he did with the Chronicles of Narnia. And I said earlier that Lewis was steeped in medieval thought. And the thing that I associate with medieval thought are the four senses of sacred scripture. For those of you who haven't come across them before, the idea is that when you read a passage of scripture, first of all, you have the literal sense. And that's the sense that the author intended to communicate. It doesn't literally mean literalistic. For example, if I read a passage that said it was raining cats and dogs, a literal understanding understands that this is an idiom. It doesn't literally mean that pets are falling from the sky. What it means is that it was raining heavily. So the literal sense in a biblical passage is what the author is intending to communicate. But you've also got three spiritual senses, which may also be in the text. So for example, uh, let's say, let's talk about the Exodus. So in the Exodus, the children of Israel, they grumble against the Lord. They are unfaithful to him. They go after other gods and they receive a retribution. And actually in the New Testament, St. Paul referring to this incident in the desert, he said these things were written for our instruction. That basically we're meant to draw out of the story of the children of Israel a moral lesson as to how we should remain faithful to the Lord and not go after other gods. So that's the moral sense of the passage. Uh, the allegorical sense, this is effectively what bridges between the Old and New Testament, foreshadowing Christ, the church, the sacraments. And so a classic example of this would be during the Exodus, the people had been grumbling and these fiery serpents had come in among the people and bitten them. And as a result, people were getting sick and dying. And the Lord tells Moses to make a bronze serpent on a pole and to lift it up and that those who look upon this bronze serpent would be healed. And this is a foreshadowing. This is a foreshadowing of Christ being raised up on the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin for our healing. And that's the allegorical sense. And then lastly, you have the anagogical sense. And this is pointing to judgment, heaven, and hell. And so we can just look at the journey of the children of Israel from Egypt, from the land of sin, through the desert, and through the river Jordan into the promised land. And we can see this as a figure of our own journey through life, ultimately ending in the promised land of heaven. 
So I say all of this just to emphasize the fact that in the medieval mind, the idea of a text having multiple meanings wasn't unusual. And this was the air that Lewis breathed. He was deeply steeped in classical and medieval thought. I mean, Narnia actually already has a non-literal meaning, and most people will recognize that fairly quickly. The fact that in the Chronicles of Narnia, you have Christian messages embedded. Lewis wrote about this. He said that what he did is he wanted to take the faith and strip it of its stained glass and Sunday school associations and basically retell the story and the Christian worldview in such a way that it can be represented and have its potency renewed because it gets past people's watchful dragons. Now, one of the questions that a lot of people ask when they first hear about the Narnia Code is, why did Lewis keep this a secret? I mean, I just said that he didn't hide the fact that the Chronicles of Narnia were imbued with Christian ideas and stories. And Lewis never told anyone, as far as we know, that the Chronicles of Narnia were based on the Seven Heavens. And that includes Walter Hooper, his wife Joy Gresham, his stepson Douglas Gresham. And I'd suggest that this needed to be a secret, at least initially, because otherwise our focus would be in the wrong place. We'd spend our time looking at the atmosphere rather than just walking in that atmosphere. It's actually the difference between looking at and looking along. That relates to an essay that Lewis wrote called Meditations in a Toolshed. Lewis wants us to look along. He wants us to be immersed in the story and just bathing in this atmosphere, whether it's jovial or martial or whichever of the planets we're talking about. And actually, Lewis wrote in a letter to his pen friend, Arthur Greaves. So these guys were childhood friends. They were the ones who bonded over the Norse myths. When he went to visit him and he saw that he had this book of Norse myths, and they went, do you like that? Wait, do you like that? This is a classic bit of Lewis when he says, two people become friends when they say, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. Anyway, he kept up a correspondence with Arthur Greaves for about 50 years. And in one of his letters, he had sent him a story that he'd written. And Lewis says, as is proper in romance, the inner meaning is carefully hidden. So this doesn't seem all that unlikely. The fact that Lewis could have had this secret plan, uh, this, this little experiment to see if he could write a book that embodied each of the seven heavens and keep it a secret. And I would suggest that he did this because he wanted people to encounter different aspects of God. I'm reminded of a song, I forget the singer, but in the song, he goes to all of the names that are given for God in the Bible. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Makerej. Uh, all of these different names of God that communicate a different aspect of who he is. And I'd suggest that Lewis is doing the same thing in the Chronicles of Narnia. In that psalm that I quoted at the beginning, Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. He's going to use the heavens to tell of the glory of God. So in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it speaks of God as a jovial figure, as king. Americans, unfortunately, in recent history have lacked a king, but don't worry, I'm working on it. And each of the other subsequent books, they reveal a different planetary quality of Aslan and therefore of God. Lewis said that Narnia was about Christ. And in the Narnia Code, we get to see how they're about Christ. We see Christ as king, as warrior, commander. God as light, as a mirror, as the word, as life, as mystery. 
These are each of the different qualities that we see as we move through the Chronicles of Narnia. And I'd argue that Lewis uses the planets in the same way that Aslan uses Narnia. For those of you who have read it, in The Voyage of the Lawn Treader, at one point we find out that not all of the children are going to be visiting Narnia again. And they're obviously upset, and they're saying, well, it's actually not so much about Narnia, it's about you, Aslan. We're not going to get to meet you. And Aslan responds, but you shall meet me, dear one. They say, wait, are you in our world as well? And Aslan says, I am. Subtle, huh? (laughs) I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. And I would argue that's what Lewis is doing in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's inviting us on this journey through Narnia so that through each book, we would come to know an aspect of Christ all the better. So there we go. That's my introduction to the Narnia Code. As I said, in December, I was invited on the Talking Beast podcast to discuss the Narnia Code with Brian. And here's a little clip of that discussion. This entire planet Narnia idea came when Dr. Ward was reading Lewis's poem called The Planets. And when talking about Jupiter, it said, uh, Jupiter of winter's past and guilt forgiven, which sounds an awful lot like a little summary of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe of winter past, of the white witch's winter coming to an end, and guilt, in this case, Edmund's guilt, being forgiven. Right off the bat, I just want to say there's probably a lot of listeners that are ready to slap a tinfoil hat on Dr. Ward and say, oh, it's conspiracy (laughs) theory. I've heard a dozen theories like this of hidden layer of meaning in Narnia. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not saying I agree with every single thing in the book you'll see, but I will say don't too easily dismiss it. There are obvious holes to poke in the theory like, well, did... Lewis didn't plan out the series in advance. How could this be possible? And Dr. Ward does address a lot of those. I'm not saying you'll they'll be satis- totally satisfying to you, but I will say he does address them. So I'm not saying agree with it. I'm just saying don't be too quick to dismiss it. And that, that's, that was kind of my reaction initially, and then I um, um, it, it was getting a lot of attention. It wasn't just going away like a lot of the other theories did. It was mm-hmm. kind of hanging around, so I decided to check it out. One of the things that turned me off to it was Ward kind of opens – um, Planet Narnia by sort of saying there's something wrong with the Narnia books. They don't quite all fit together. There's all these different elements that seem really a- out of place. And I read a few chapters and just as of someone who loves the Narnia books, kind of got turned off to that and put it down. Like, I love the books and think they work wonderfully. What is he talking about? <laughs> so it's interesting. The Narnia Code, he kind of softens his language quite a bit and comes at it more from the perspective of, I love these books. I, I read them when I was a kid and I loved them so much. There are some things that don't quite add up. How would you kind of describe what what the the void he's trying to fill with his theory here? What what's the what's the problem that he's trying to propose a solution for? Basically, well, I'll begin by saying that my introduction to this was actually a trailer, an advertisement when I was back in England for the uh, the documentary of the Narnia Code, and I remember scoffing as soon as I heard "Secret Code of Narnia." immediately scoffed stupid idea don't believe it straight away um and one thing i I think his harder language in planet narnia could be explained by the fact that it's a written for a scholarly audience but it was also that scholarly audience that was more critical of lewis 
so there were a number of complaints that people said about the Chronicles of Narnia. The first was... Well, I hope you enjoyed that. The entire episode can be found on their podcast feed. Just search for Talking Beasts and you can listen to the whole thing there. And Matt and I will be back next week when we will finally be back at Till We Have Faces. Nick, our sound engineer, will be back on the job doing the editing so I don't have to do this anymore. And we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. <laughs>